Hi, everyone. Today, me and Halivorn are going to be analyzing three Cradle of Filth songs The Baronic Man from the 2006 album Thornography, Forgive Me Father from the 2011 album Evermore Darkly, and The Death of Love from the 2008 album Godspeed on the Devil's Thunder which was a concept album centered in the life and crimes of Gilles de Rey and his love for Joan of Arc. So our first question here is, the last time we discussed several themes, okay, last time we discussed several themes characteristic of the Cradle of Filth's um, lyrics, which of these themes are encountered in these particular three songs? Well, I chose these three songs uh, not only because they are uh, very lyrically complex and thematically complex, but also because they are representative of Cradle of Filth's um, themes and their inspiration from 19th century English literature. So uh, uh, three of the themes that we encounter here, uh, well, for the first one, for the Byronic Man, we're going to discuss about the Byronic hero, the type of male character which was uh, very popular not only from uh, its inspiration from the work of Lord Byron, but also one of the very popular types of characters ever since. We even encounter that kind of characters nowadays. You know, Batman, for example, is a very Byronic hero if we think about it. So uh, this is one typology of male character prominent in dark in, in late romanticist literature and in Cradle of Filth's lyrics. And then in the next two songs, we're going to see two different types of femininity, which are uh, also derived from Gothic literature, but also twisted in a way as to suit Cradle of Filth. So um, if uh, many romantic and Gothic characters, female characters uh, come from the uh, um, are, are found in the dichotomy between uh, the pure and innocent woman and the demonic woman. Well, this is what we see here. Forgive me, Father, I have sinned, shows uh, the obsession of a priest with a woman whom he sees as a temptress. But uh, in the way Cradle of Filth uh, deconstructs it is that the priest is in fact the one who is obsessive and who uh, becomes a voyeur. And he, it is, everything is happening in his mind. So the woman, the parishioner that he obsesses about, she's not a demon, she's not a temptress, the demons are all in his head. And um, as for the uh, pure and innocent woman, she becomes a warrior, Joan of Arc. So she's by no means a damsel in distress, but a force in herself and her lover, or at least the, the man who, who loved her, Gilles de Rey, he was in love not with her beauty, not with her vulnerability, not even with her uh, piousness, but really with her strength. And this is how she will be described in, uh, in The Death of Love, the, the last song that we're going to analyze. Mm -hmm. It's very interesting. And you know, this covers a wide range of topics that we can kind of see transmuted and transformed in your own work. That is very true. I, I do have these types of characters myself and I do enjoy playing with them, with, with the concepts as they were first uh, created and uh, as they appear in 19th century literature and then adapted to, well, different periods to, to the medieval times, but also 
why not a, a modern interpretation? Because I don't think that, well, neither my writings nor Danny Phil's could have been written in the 19th century or in the medieval times. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So it's informed by modernity. Exactly. Exactly. Yes. So let's go ahead and talk about the first song. Oh, yes. And for this, I'm going to uh, share my screen in order to show you some uh, lyrics. So the way we're going to do this, I'm going to show you lyrics. And then at the end of each song, uh, we are going to uh, also listen a fragment of that certain song. All right, here it is. So first, the Byronic Man. As lonely as a poet on the walls of Jericho or the moon without the comfort of the stars, I'm loath to know that a man without a soul is nothing but a spilt canopic jar. So this is, um, first of all, the, uh, we, we see here from the title even that it is supposed to be an impersonation of a Byronic hero or a, a Byronic man. So, um, well, he's a man without a soul himself, a sort of a Dorian Gray, because he has given his soul to pleasure. So his promiscuous existence gives him an exciting earthly life, but he loses salvation and eternity. And if we're from the beginning uh, of the song, we see here that um, it, it is given a uh, sort of a mythical dimension by by the mention of a biblical setting and with the canopic jar we again dive into that fascination with orientalism that um, 19th century English literature had so um, well the the canopic jar um, these are for um, um, uh, four types of uh, urns which were used uh, in ancient Egypt, each preserving one organ during the process of mummification. So each of the jars were filled with specific organs and uh, these organs would be needed in the afterlife. So a spilled canopic jar leads, symbolizes incompleteness and loss of eternity because those full canopic jars lead the soul into the realm of the dead and he is given eternity and salvation, but the ones that are spilled, well, that is a a man without a soul, a man lost in eternity. So it sort of makes this Byronic man sort of a, uh, someone who made a pact with with the devil or the Dr. Faustus or a Dorian Gray. Mm -hmm, I see. Yeah, like the image of the canopic jar seems to suggest that without a soul, he's just a bunch of organs on the floor, right? Exactly, exactly. Yes, that's a great observation. Mm -hmm. Right. So um, here we see uh, in more detail the sort of a devilish fact. I proved it, improved it, drove a sonnet right through it. And in this state of bliss, Evil kissed with wet lips, pen-filled fingertips. So here uh, we see that uh, the poet fights with the the pen, which is mightier than the sword, right? And uh, uh, well, he he apparently makes a pact for immortalization, but not for himself and his soul, but for his art. 
So um, this is something that uh, Byronic Hero would definitely do, isn't it? Because he is this uh, uh, sophisticated intellectual who is also very arrogant and cynical and he things that he is superior to everyone else and this is why he cannot adapt to society but at the same time he has this this pride of his um for, for the greatness of his work and uh in this case the poet for his art and so he he sells his soul and says exciting new flames that my fame would claim for me reciting back the almanac of travesties. So he's basically guilty of every sin in the book and he makes the most of his fame, the one he, it, he has bought with his own soul. And uh, this is why he asks um, in, in a different line, which circle of hell is mine when I arrive? In, in reference to Dante's Inferno, where each circle is holding a different category of sinners. So he has done so much he's so immoral that he would fit basically anywhere mm -hmm. and um this is the the chorus and this is a reference to um, um the famous description of lord byron um coined by Lady Carolyn Lamb, who was one of his uh, lovers, who described him as mad, bad, and dangerous to know. And so um, he, uh, Danny Filth paraphrases here, and he says, they call me bad, mad Caliban with manners, dangerous to know, a passing fad, taught in all debate, in excess, and in canto. And uh, this is one of, uh, one example of Danny Phil's uh, uh, dark humor and irony, because uh, yes, first of all, it is clearly that um, this is um, um, a, a reference to Shakespeare's The Tempest, where Caliban is the half monster, son of a witch. So uh, uh, it suggests that not only is he that type of uh, eccentric intellectual in the vein of Lord Byron, but uh, he is also a, a wild and bestial type of, of man who, who, who is polished with courtly manners. So he's indeed a very um, dangerous person. And uh, the irony in the last uh, two lines is in reference to the vices and preoccupations of aristocrats. Uh, but the, the humor comes from the fact that it is seen from the rigid morality of the 19th century England, where once you are labeled as vicious, everything you do is, is blameable, even Canto, right? <laughs> because Canto is, uh, you know, in, in that enumeration of bad things that he does. Mm, I see. And then, fleeing grief from foreign maps, I still played vampire aristocrat, unloading my gun in hot promiscuous laps. Then, shooting swans in a gondola, I trip my foot on a fallen star, and there's nothing like a mouthful of Venetian tar to let you know just who you fucking are. So it is again a reference to Byron's travels to the Mediterranean shores in a self-exile because he found British morals too rigid. So he, like many other Bohemian intellectuals of the time, uh, preferred those looser countries like Italy, Greece, and France. So there Byron goes and continues his sexual exploits, right? I'm loading my gun in hot promiscuous laps in an erotic metaphor. And uh, the, 
the vampire aristocrat, right? The, the mysterious and dangerous and handsome young man who just travels from place to place as if he had all the time in the world just to, um, to, to see the world and, and have any kind of experience imaginable. So uh, uh, here we see him in Venice as a sort of a, um, a Don, Don Juan or Don Juan to make another reference to, to Lord Byron. So, uh, um, and uh, he, is, uh, he is brutally awakened to, to reality. And we see here this very surreal image with the, I tripped my foot on a falling star because he's so uh, full of himself and so immersed in his own, uh, uh, in, in self-admiration that when he falls, he falls from very high. Mm -hmm. So uh, now on to the song. So we're going to listen to a bit of the song. And um, we're also going to hear uh, Villevalo, the, uh, the singer of uh, the Finnish band Him. Uh, it is a, uh, a duet, a featuring. featuring. Yes. So, uh, well, here we see him as uh, um, as as that uh, un entitled, whimsical aristocrat, you know, shooting swans in a gondola. But he's heading the clouds in reality, and very and has unrealistic. Uh, uh, unrealistic desires, and this is why uh, this is why we have that part with the patron saint heartache, because he's in fact uh, heartbroken and misunderstood, and he masks it with uh, uh, eccentricities. So 
he brings heartache to himself and to others because of mm -hmm. his unrealistic expectations. And then, uh, uh, you know, the ever after you will hear my laughter uh, it points to his legacy, right? <laughs> uh, and, and, and then we saw the response that he gives to those accusations to mm -hmm. go fuck their mothers on my grave, <laughs> on his grave, you know, the, the legacy once more. Indeed. It was like, I think in, during certain parts of the lyrics, it seems like it faded a little bit into the background, right? So like, oh, there's like a different sound design. Like I noticed that like during certain parts, I could definitely hear it a lot more like symphonically. I could hear like all the instruments and everything. And then was it just a computer or was it like the song? Because there were certain parts where you could barely hear anything. It was just really stretched out syllables. And then sometimes it just kind of faded into the background. Oh, I don't think that's supposed to happen. Okay, because I was a little bit confused. Yeah, it might be like a technical problem. Oh, yeah, I wonder why. I wonder if it's the, is it the internet maybe? Because I, I could hear it just right. Right, like it was like, you know, the part before Mad Caliban, that part was very, very hard for me to hear on for some reason it was like really faded and there were parts it's it sounded like it was coming through the mic like not it wasn't through the computer oh uh is it something in the settings that i can change maybe i'm not sure because the rest of it was fine after mad caliban that that part was fine okay then then should we leave it like this? Then? Yeah, I think so. It might just be an internet problem. Yeah, maybe it was just an internet. Maybe, yeah, it has fluctuations. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, no, I think, I think the settings are fine. So I, I guess it was the internet. Mm -hmm. Okay, should we go to the next song? Yes. Okay, so the next song is Forgive Me Father, I Have Sinned. So this is about a priest who forms a fixation or on a woman, on, on a parishioner, and his guilt leads him to see her as a seductress and a demoness. So it is about a man's fear of his own desires and uh, he casts the blame on, on the woman because uh, he doesn't want to admit that it is his fault. And so he makes up fantasies with a demoness, uh, tempting him to give in to sin. And um, it is quite a psychological song as we are going to see. It says, Forgive me, Father, I have sinned. Darkness put her painted claws in me again. Her vision drowns like service wine, whispered kisses so divine. I was blessed, but now I've come undone. So it is about the priest's fall from grace. And you see here the darkness is personified into a female character, her painted claws. And we imagine she has painted claws, right? So she is, she is a woman who, uh, um, who likes painting her nails or someone conscious of her beauty and femininity. So this is how he portrays the priest, speaker portrays darkness. Storm clouds roll out overhead, above their master, end of all flesh, end of all days. Love predicts disaster in her precious ways. I was burned a sacerdotal soul, 
by the demon queen of my dreams. Infatuation turned to total control. Her, her rose was sweet, but her thorns were barbarous. So the dangers of love on the soul, this is what uh, the storm clouds suggest. The emotional suffering and damnation go hand in hand here. And this is one of the Gothic tropes that we discussed last time, where love is always obsessive and destructive and overwhelming. And um, in the second part of the stanza with the demon queen, uh, we again see here the female character as a dominatrix, infatuation turned to total control. So the male character loses any any will when he when he's faced to her and uh, she's beautiful but dangerous like a rose with barbarous thorns mm -hmm. and the chorus says in in the voice of an omniscient narrator because until this point we had the priest speaking and now the omniscient narrator comes and says many never want to see Many never want to know the truth behind their fantasies, their deepest needs, let alone be shown them. So this, this is where it turns psychological because it, this voice uh, analyzes the behavior of the priest who blames his own desires upon a fictional demon queen instead of looking into his own mind and soul and realizing and coming to terms with the fact that these are his, his deepest needs. And this is why they manifest his fantasies. So it is not a supernatural vision, but in fact, the depths of his mind. Mm -hmm. And here we have uh, in three different instances, but I've put them all together. Uh, it is spoken in a female voice and it is said as if the woman he loves uh, or, or that he's infatuated with is speaking, but we're going to see here that it is not in fact her speaking, but the way in which the priest imagines her to be speaking. So as to, again, to, to pin his blame on her. She says, love, love me and worship me. I lavish you and ravish you, fulfill all wishes and fetishes too. So again, with uh, lavish and ravish, as we are going to see further on, then she says, love me and worship me. I'll nurture you and hurt you too. Fulfill all wishes for my sad Aladdin. So um, in his erotic fantasies, the woman beckons him to her, promising to fulfill his erotic needs. And his guilt manifests in the form of masochistic desires because he wants to be hurt by her, to be ravished by her. And then we see again the references to the West's fascination with the Orient in the 19th century with, with Aladdin. And um, as we're going to see, uh, uh, soon with, uh, uh, he compares her to a sandstorm in, in an hourglass. So this is also a reminiscent of that um, Arabic uh, setting that was so uh, uh, loved by uh, the romantics in the 19th century. And then she says, I'll grant you life beyond your ken, the envy of all other men, whatever vice will make you spend eternity with me. So if she is a demon, she wants to make a pact with him for his soul, and she offers her the things he wants most, the envy of all other men and long life. 
And now he says, she comes to me like a sandstorm in an hourglass, a whirlwind of desire. I'm hypnotized to think beyond the pale, beyond heart-stopping eyes and sopping thighs. I want to fail. A wicked spell cast over me, addicted to her utterly, despite the horrors that just stayed beneath the beautiful. Again, we see the dangers of erotic desire, of love and beauty because he's completely under her control this time by her uh you know her beauty here is a wicked spell and uh horrors are always lying beneath the beautiful and this is the part that we're going to see and the video th this will not be a lyric video but an actual video where we are going to see the uh um well the the male character the singer will appear as the priest and also in a sort of uh uh sort of demonic himself okay Yes. So here we see in the video uh, two instances of these two characters, because we see the priest and the demon queen, the one with the snakes. And then we see that the roles are inverted because we see the actual woman that he uh, is infatuated with. And we see that he is in fact the demon who follows her. He is the stalker, the, the voyeur, the perpetrator. And he is in her room and she actually does nothing at all apart from being beautiful and sleeping. But he's the one who is the, the, the creepy person who simply stalks her and has fantasies with her. So uh, uh, it, it, I think it is very interesting, this change of roles. It is uh, one of my favorite videos by Cradle of Filth, if not my favorite for these uh, juxtapositions and, uh, and, and plays and plays and metaphors. Mm -hmm. Okay, so this was Forgive Me Father. And now on to the one with uh, Joan of Arc, The Death of Love. So this is a, a more romantic song. It is a love song uh, from start to finish. The imaginary dialogue between Gilles de Rey and Joan of Arc on the day of her execution. It is composed as a series of questions and uh, uh, questions and answers that they ask each other. And um, so um, this is how it starts. Uh, 
Her penultimate sighs call softly on the kindling wind, her saintly eyes filling with tears, lifting with truth. And then a golden flash like the onset of heaven, leaving her screams breaking my heart and in the grip of fire, I knew the death of love. A motive in Cradle of Filth is the woman who is misunderstood by people and seen as someone who breaks religious norms. So we see uh, this type of female character as a witch and here as uh, Joan of Arc. So she is punished for this, what is seen as a transgression usually by death. And her lover suffers too because uh, it means the end of their relationships so of the death of love for him who is heartbroken and will not know love again. So this is uh, a, a, an important characteristic appearing in many of Cradle of Felt's songs. But usually, like I said, she is, uh, she is a witch, but here she is uh, uh, the maid of Orléans, she is the, um, the pious woman who thinks, uh, who, who truly believes that she was uh, uh, well, chosen by God or that she is able to hear God's voice. So she is saintly as he describes her here, her saintly eyes filling with tears. And um, so this is with, um, like I said, by command of the king of heaven came the death of love. So the irony is in the fact that uh, she has dedicated her life to God, but she is also martyred in the name of God. Mm -hmm. And then the dialogue, Gilles asks, where will you be when they tense for warfare? What will you see with your innocence there? Where will you be, my darling? Where will you be when they tense for warfare? And she says, where will you be where God is glorifying? There we will be between the dead and dying. Where will you be, my darling? Where will you be when God is glorifying? So her visions were used in the war. And after this, she is accused of heresy and witchcraft and executed by the very people who should have been grateful to her. So when God is glorifying because they are celebrating victory and the burning of a witch, she's among the dead and dying being executed. Burning was the sunset like a portent of doom on the saintly Iron Maiden as she fell from her wound. But visions and ambition never listened to submission, as she was on a mission from the highest above. To lord upon the slaughter like a sword through hissing water, she arose where archers sought her for the death, the death of love, the righteous death of love. So she is captured and she is tortured. So the saintly Iron Maiden is an instrument of um, of torture, uh, of, uh, of the sinful as it was seen, or it can also be a metaphor for Joan because she is uh, saintly, uh, she is maiden and dressed in plate armor, as we will see her described again. And now a very beautiful part, one that I love, is the one where we see why Gilles is in love with her. And we'll see that it is very, very different from uh, uh, the, uh, the love full of desire and eroticism that we saw in the previous song. The narrator says, Gilles adored her drama, her suit of pure white armor blazed against the English in a torrent of light. 
framed amid the thick of fire, a flame of Valkyrie. She made him click without desire, and in his eyes she swam a goddess. Their love is platonic, not erotic, and physically unconsummated, so Gilles idealizes her. He is filled with admiration for Joan, so even though she is this pure and innocent woman and, and pious woman, she's definitely not a damsel in distress, and she's not even passive in the way in which the uh, um, the female character was seen, uh, I mean, the, the parishioner, right, was seen in, um, in the previous song. But she, uh, uh, it is her, her power that um, makes Jill be in love with her. And then the last exchange, you see that it, uh, um, the song changes from uh, uh, an objective third person perspective and then uh, to uh, first person when there is that dialogue between the two. And then he says, how will you breathe when their wills are turning? How will you know if the sky is burning? Where will you be my darling? How will you breathe when their wills are turning? And she says, where will you be when Babel builds my fire? Will you not flee and label me pariah? Where will you be, my darling? Where will you be when they light my pyre? So um, how will you breathe when their wheels are turning? Uh, again, is a reference to an instrument of torture and the sky is burning to the fact that she was uh, she was burned at the stake. And uh, uh, we remember that a powerful image of her burning at the stake. He sees her as flamed amid the thick of fire like a Valkyrie. So, um, and, uh, but still he is obviously concerned for her, but then her own concern is about if he will stand by her or if he will uh, deny her, right? Will you not flee and label me pariah? And the Babel uh, is uh, the irrational mob that is punishing her. So, and, and the pariah, if she is, uh, uh, if he would turn against her as well. And then we learn if he turned against her or not. It says, the, again, the narrator speaks, aligned with Joan in all that was enthroned and divine, he swore to score the crimes Jack Dawes poured on his dove, crimes he knew alone derived from minds of the blind. The church unfurled for murder, perched upon the death of love. So he is he sees her mission as um, um, as completely divine beyond the shade of a doubt. So he is aligned with her, and he is uh, on her side even after she dies. He never uh, renegades her, and uh, moreover, he is portrayed as. Uh, losing her mind after the death of Joan and uh, the the loss of his love, so he swore to score the crimes. So um, uh, he swears to commit revenge, and he becomes a serial killer after this. We don't really know what what happened with Gilderay, but he was said to be uh, um, well pedophile and someone who uh, would sacrifice children to Satan and would do a lot of satanic rituals. So uh, he, he was a serial killer as, um, 
Um, well, apart from being a nobleman, the military man, he was also a serial killer. So uh, here we see uh, the symbolism of birds, uh, the jackdaws, which is uh, uh, which are birds of prey, and uh, um, they, they represent the crowd and the church, right? Who is perched upon the death of love for murder, again, with perch a reference to birds, while the dove represents Joan, who represents purity. So uh, crimes he knew alone derived from minds of the blind. In his mind, she is guilty of no crime, but the people are those who are blind to understand that she was in fact touched by divinity. And the last uh, part of the song, uh, speaks about her very last moments alive. And she says, and even when she fought for breath, her words would leave a scar. For only in the grip of darkness will we shine amidst the brightest stars. So in, uh, in Cradle of Felt's interpretation, these are the last words of, of Joan. It, uh, they are really the, the last words of a martyr because there has to be darkness and there has to be suffering in order to receive salvation, to, to save yourself and other people. So um, her last few words. Now we are going to, uh, to listen to this part of the song. And again, it is the video. We won't see the lyrics, but um, I, I'm not sure if, if uh, but you and our viewers can understand the lyrics because of the growls, but we have read them already. Uh, and so we are going to see, um, uh, apart from the band, uh, Gilles de Ray and Joan of Arc, of course. Here it goes. I hope you enjoyed it, everyone. Wow, it was amazing. I, I love the music videos and how you can see the band as well as people acting out the characters. I'm really happy that you loved it. And uh, yes, I love it as well. And these are very, very interesting portrayals of, uh, uh, of Gilles and Joan. 
and uh, which one was was your favorite? Well, we've only seen two. I, I think I like the one with the priest a little bit more than the one with J Joan and Jill. I, I love both of them though, but the one with the priest really struck me in particular because of how the demoness looked like, you know, in her belly dancer outfit, which was another nod to Orientalism. Exactly. Yes, yes, exactly. There are so many layers and that video is more uh, layered and dynamic indeed. Mm -hmm. Especially with how the woman he's obsessing over isn't doing anything. And you can really see that because she's lying on a bed, you know, dressed in white and she's not even awake yet. But then he's the one looking at her and, you know, thinking about all these things and having these fantasies. Yes, exactly. And earlier in the video, we see that she is coming to confess to him and he's having those fantasies while she's confessing to him. So she's, we can imagine that she's speaking her sins and he's imagining her saying those things with, uh, I'll nurture you and hurt you too. So this is what he hears when she is confessing. Mm -hmm, definitely. And we can definitely kind of see this a little bit with Aiden and Rhinebeg, right? Yes, that's true. The difference being that Aiden is the, the perverse kind of thing, <laughs> even though, well, he, he does have a similar guilt because he, in a way he does feel perverse because he has never, uh, you know, had such vivid fantasies as he has after he meets Ranveig. So, yes, I, I think that kind of exceeds his expectations. <laughs> but he's not as angsty as the priest here. I don't think he feels that much guilt, right? Because I mean, he's not envisioning anything really dramatic or anything. And I think Ryan, and I don't think he has any visions either of a demoness or anything like that. Oh, yes. No, it's, it's definitely not as extreme. But, uh, well, that part where uh, he, he sort of blames her for, in a way, he admires the fact that she is seductive, but at the same time, he blames her for being seductive. We find that as well in, in Aiden, though, of course, to a much lesser extent, because he can get over it and he fights against it. He doesn't want to have these thoughts about her, but because of his sheltered upbringing and his uh, strictly religious expectations of a woman, he sort of struggles with the fact that she is uh, quite sensual. Mm -hmm. That's, that's true. If Eyalf was a woman, though, I think she would be more sensual than Rhinebeck, because I don't really think Rhinebeck is that sensual compared to Eyalf. <laughs> he's the demon queen. <laughs> I know, he is, definitely. And he's so openly, you know, he's so open about it, which would really shock Aiden. But Rhinebeck is much more subtle, I think. And I think she's afraid to be that provocative. Yeah, that's very true. That, that's, that's a great difference between them indeed, because Ranveig is young and she's unmarried and she is a woman, so uh, she cannot afford to be that uh, demonstrative in terms of her uh, sexuality. And I, I don't think she wants to, because she's not really as, as sensual as Eolf is. So yes, definitely. But then Eolf is also a 
combination between the the demon queen of everyone's dreams and uh, the um the byronic man in the way that it is described there because uh in in that song he was portrayed as a sort of a dorian gray kind of character so who who pretends to be an an aristocrat and the and just you know flies from flower to flower in order to have fun so and uh, a witty and scandalous person so from this point of view ales could be seen as that as well but then you know who my my real byronic hero is <laughs> right and how would you say he contrasts with Aolf as byronic heroes i think the main difference is Aolf is not gloomy right yeah definitely so i think that there can be different sides to the byronic hero as they appear in byron's poem so uh well Ingvar is the one who is gloomy and cynical and world-weary and has that um, intellectual sophistication that makes him feel arrogant and superior to everyone else. And he's also very self-destructive and he has that uh, death wish and those, uh, he has some past trauma and Il has some past trauma, but then Ingvar's uh, sort of morphs into a, a guilt that makes him have masochistic fantasies, sort of like the, the guilt of the priest in Forgive mm-hmm. Me Father, whereas Eolf is definitely not as, as tormented as Ingvar is. So Eolf is rather the one who, who gets over his, his drama and then gets to play play roles, play the aristocrat and just uh, have fun, you know, live for hedonism. But Ingvar is the the dark side of the Byronic hero. That's true. He definitely is since, you know, he has all of the traits. And you said Aiden was a kind of Byronic hero, but I think without the extreme angst because he does have angst, but he doesn't have the violent urges or the masochism. Yeah, that's true. That's true. So he is, uh, uh, to a lesser extent, so uh, apart from the intellectual sophistication um, and the the gloominess and the psychological depth and the fact that he likes to to sit and ponder about death and other uh, and and about people's behaviors and uh, you know patterns in society. Apart from that, he doesn't fit not nearly as much as as Ingvar because he also doesn't have uh, past trauma really I mean yes he doesn't get along with his father but that's not uh, well not nearly as bad as what Ingvar and Dale go through. True well I guess another trauma that happens to Aiden is how he's kidnapped and taken as a slave right? (laughs) Oh yeah, that's true. That's true. But uh, that's a prison trauma, not a past one. Yes, <laughs> that's true. Yeah, and I guess the fact that his father was treating him badly, and I guess Merwin died. Mm, yeah, that's right. But then, yeah, he obsesses a lot with death, even though death was not so you know out of the ordinary as it is nowadays. I mean, the the death of a of a young person and of a young mother. So, but yes, he sort of he lings he lingers a lot on it given the frequency with which these things occurred. So because mm-hmm. he is this gloomy person himself. He definitely inherited that from Merwin. So that's true. Do you think Merwin is Byronic? Wow, that's a good question. Um 
I'm not sure. I'm I'm not sure. I mean, a, apart from the the gloominess and the silence. Well, I, I'm not sure. <laughs> the ironic here is more like the, the strong silent types. It's definitely Ingvar that fits into all that. True. I guess Merwin is silent, but she's not really strong in the conventional sense because she's not active. Like she's just at home most yeah. of the time. Yeah, exactly. I mean, she she's not something that people would see as uh as, as strong or heroic, not not even anti-heroic, really. Just very normal, I guess. Very homebody, I guess. Yeah, I mean, very strange, but not doing something out of the ordinary, just a, a strange <laughs> woman. Right, and she doesn't go on adventures either, so people won't see her that often. Yeah, definitely, definitely. I mean, women were generally not seen that often outside the house in uh, in medieval times, but yes, Marwin, yeah, definitely doesn't go. Mm-hmm. Do you think she's one of the types of women we talked about today in the in the songs? You know, either well, she's definitely not the seductress. We can we can conclude that. But do you think she has a little bit of the pure woman? Well, yes, I think I think she does. I think she does. Maybe um, <laughs> to talk about another uh, uh, famous pure woman from 19th century literature, right? <laughs> Tess of the Dovervilles. So someone who can be seen uh, as uh, as a whore uh, from the outside, but also as very saintly from a different perspective. Mm-hmm. So yes, in this sense, yes, I think I think she is because uh, she has an affair while well, she's married and uh, uh, she can be seen as both. That's true, right? Exactly. And I think Aiden himself, he never really gets confirmation that she, you know, actually had an affair to have him, right? Though, she, though he kind of knows that she had an affair, but he doesn't know that that person was his father, his real father. Yes, exactly. And he doesn't know exactly how it happened. He, he doesn't really see her as that kind of person to do this. I mean, he, well, he's, she's not like what he imagines as a uh, adulteress, you know, because there was that uh, stigma on on especially on women who had extramarital affairs, and he would imagine that that kind of person, you know, the the, the typical fallen woman. But then Merwin is very saintly in all all other ways. Mm-hmm. So he so sort of her complexity is sadly lost on Aiden because he doesn't see her in all aspects of her personality and behavior he doesn't really see the rebellious her although she is quite rebellious in the story that I'm publishing right now on Tapas the Enchanted Dials although not that kind of rebellious but she is quite an out of the ordinary woman (laughs) Right. I remember seeing this on DeviantArt years ago. And basically, it's a very subtle type of rebellion. It's something that people don't expect her to do, but it's not nothing dangerous or really adventurous compared to, let's say, what Ingvar experiences. It's not like she's going whale hunting. Oh, yes. Compared to Ingvar, yeah, definitely not. <laughs> At the same time, well, maybe it is quite... It can be dangerous because she takes her kid out in the storm on the on the edge of the sea. <laughs> so maybe that's kind of a, a thrill, you know, an, an extreme sport. 
compared to how mundane her life usually is. Especially. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> and to how people imagine her when they usually see her in church, you know, all pious, they don't imagine that she runs away at night and walks on, on walls and stands on the shore in the storm and things like that. Has she ever thought about running away? I don't think she knows where she would go or what exactly she would do because I think that she is sort of afraid that she would fall into another type of captivity, you know? So mm. what can she actually do to really be free? I mean, only if, if she were to get a lot of money and buy herself an estate, but then she's not really knowledgeable about uh, economic affairs. That's very true, unfortunately. And, you know, Halvard never came to pick her up, unfortunately. Yeah, indeed. Yeah, because he's the one with the economic know-how. I guess if she got to know him better and they actually lived together, maybe she could have learned more stuff about that. Oh, the yes, economic definitely. stuff, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I really think that she would, she would like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, and other female characters that were influenced by the types of female characters we talked about today are Valdis and Vili, especially her relationship with her husband, Vili, right? And Rhinevig, as we talked about. Yeah, that's true. So Vili and Valdis, yeah, the, they could make a 19th century romance really well because it is a romance full of obsession and she's the one who inspires obsession in her. So I wouldn't say that she is this type of seductress or definitely not the way Eolf is and not even Ranveig. So she's not seen as uh you know very attractive to other people so she it is mostly in her attitude uh, with which she wins him over mm -hmm, exactly like people even suspected that she used love potions on him right because he was that obsessive and other people found her strange especially due to her behavior yes exactly exactly but he is so attracted to her that yes people believe that um well, a wicked spell was cast over him to quote, forgive me, father, I have sinned. <laughs> so, yes. And then, Addicted of course, her utterly. <laughs> yes, exactly. How about Mergu and Elisar? Like Mergu is not a seductor at all. I mean, he is not comparable to Eolf. He's just being himself, but that's enough to make Elisar pretty obsessed, right? <laughs> yes, I think that's true. The, that is a a more normal or normal uh uh well a non-gothic type of love i think because it's 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 quite sweet and natural and it's not full of you know obsession and uh, overwhelming i mean yeah maybe it's overwhelming especially for mungu who is very uh you know emotional <laughs> he has this kind of temper and he idealizes lsr a lot and for lsr okay it is the it is a source of guilt in a way, but then he uh, he's going through a bad time. So he has guilt about a lot of things during those weeks where, that they spent together. So it's not just Murgo, but um, yeah, I think it's, uh, it, it is a strong love, but it's not really the, uh, the Gothic type, which is kind of toxic and everyone suffers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's why it's dark, right? Because it's so dramatic and so many people are suffering. I mean, no one benefits from these kinds of situations, really. 
Oh, yes, exactly. Exactly. So I guess that that fits with a lot of my characters, with, with my couples, you know, Ingvar and Dale and Villian Valdez and even Ranveig and Aiden, though they can still be redeemed. <laughs> <laughs> How about the modern AU of Eolf and Ingvar? Do you feel like they are more gothic or less gothic? Are they more like independent of each other or are they even more obsessive? Oh wow, that that's a good question. Um, I'm not sure how to put it. I mean, I think that uh, well, they don't behave as obsessively. I think because they uh, uh, they accept from the beginning that they want to be together and that they get together, so they sort of have a more normal relationship due to the fact that well, nowadays, especially in in a country like Norway. They, they wouldn't, I don't know, have any guilt over it or something. Uh, uh, even Ingvar, who is very reluctant to have relationships, he knows that these things are okay and are normal. I mean, being with someone and living with someone, it's, it's normal. So even if he wouldn't be with anyone else, when he realizes that it's ill that he wants to be with, he wants to try. But um well Ingvar being the the arrogant and distant uh and silent person <laughs> of course a lot of uh bad things derive from there and come between them and ill being the well Ulve <laughs> being the temperamental kind of person he has a limit and <laughs> when these things clash we can imagine that it's not as smooth but I dare say it is smoother than in the medieval times Definitely. So there's no equivalent to the uh, mid, mid, Midsummer Nights scene, right? No, not really. Not as dramatic. I dare say the whole novel it's, is a lot less dramatic than Lucky Wolf in every way imaginable. <laughs> that makes sense. Yeah, but there is blackmail, as you told me. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's true. I really wanted to keep that. So in, in a way, um, Equilibrium Point will be a mirror of Lucky Wall, but a lot less dramatic because it is, uh, well, ad adapted to our reality. Mm -hmm, exactly. Will it be around the same length? Yes, I think so. I, I think it will. Or, I don't know, maybe even longer. I, I don't really know mm -hmm. right now. Right. It can be longer. I, I think about a hundred pages in the format in which I'm writing, which will make like maybe 200 pages in book format. Wow. Wow. I think that was about the same for Lucky Wolf, right? Yeah, it's uh, well, 20 pages less. Mm, I see. Great. I can't wait for it to be released on Tapas. Thank you so much. I think we'll have to discuss about that book in a separate podcast. There Definitely. is a lot to, to mm -hmm. say. Do you want to do the podcast before Equilibrium comes out or after? I think we can do one before as a teaser. Yes, definitely. And, you know, we should have more art for it as well for the teasers. Yes, yes. Uh, I cannot wait because I've only just started uh, illustrating this story. So more will follow. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. This, this was really informative and I love the music and all the images that are in the lyrics. It's amazing. Oh, thank you. I'm really happy that you enjoyed it because it's definitely my favorite band. So I'm having a blast having these discussions and closed readings. 
Mm-hmm. Are we going to be reviewing more songs in a future Cradle of Filth podcast? Or maybe should we jump to another band? What do you think? Well, we have to talk about Elizabeth Bathory because he, she is a fascinating character in their interpretation. And there are some parallels to Valdis. So uh, I think we'll have to talk about her as well. That's true. Yeah, I remember that we talked, we had actually had her on the cover, you know, on the on the thumbnail last time, and we never got to talk about her song in detail. Mm, yeah, exactly. exactly. Yeah, I think we should have a few more podcasts about the Cradle of Filth. <laughs> yes, that's awesome. I love it. Yes, and then we can have Finn Troll and the other bands. Yes, we'll, we'll go on to folk metal and Viking metal. Right, awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you. Goodbye. Bye.